All right, everybody, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. Uh, I know it's been a little while, just like Slim Shady, we are back. <laughs> that is my intro. Uh, what's going on, everybody? Tyler, welcome. Welcome back, buddy. Hey, Mike. You look like yeah. you should have a big cigar in your mouth. And, like, you're coming here from Montana, correct? I am coming from Montana. I'm I'm uh, broadcasting live from Big Sky, Montana, baby. Uh, yeah, I feel like you need one of those cowboy hats, cigar, I don't know. Oh, lambs, oh the, cow- the cowboy lambs. hats and boots are coming, my friend. They're yeah. not going to make an appearance on this show, but, uh, you know, when in Rome, as they say. <laughs> the, the outfit of Montana. Um, Love it. Yeah, so all right, we've got a uh, good good set of stories for you this week. I know it's been a little while. We're going to try to bring the uh, our A plus game. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, to start things off. Uh, we're going to be leading with Binance, so they're implementing mandatory KYC. This is a big story uh, for those of you who've been kind of paying attention to the signposts, reductions in leverage, uh, the resigning of uh, Brian Brooks, the CEO. This has been uh, kind of a long time coming, but I think there are some pretty big implications. So we're going to be diving deep into that. Um, we are also going to be talking about uh, OnlyFans um, and their uh, movement Mike's away from website. I, you stole the joke <laughs> right out of my mouth. I was like, <laughs> "Damn it, Tyler!" Um, yeah, Tyler literally begged me to talk about this story, guys. Just let's set the record straight. Um, okay, and then uh, lastly, we're going to be talking about Jay Clayton joining the advisory board of Fireblocks, um, which is really exciting. Big shout out to our friends at Fireblocks. That is that is very cool. Um, but before we get into those stories, I want to go over our uh, charts uh, of the week. Uh, so I'm going to share my screen here. All right, guys, we're going to start off with uh, the Misery Index. Um, so Tyler, you're the one who suggested it this week. Just describe uh, for those who aren't watching on video what we're looking at and um, what is the the Misery, the U.S. Misery Index. Yeah, this one's very interesting, and I have a unique read on it. But it's the sum of the CPI and the unemployment rate. Um, and you see when it spiked back in like April of 2020, mid-pandemic, and the Fed basically obviously kept the spigots open. Fiscal started playing a bigger role in, you know, in, um, in policy. And I think what we're going to see is the taper that they're all talking about is they're not going to go through with it. Like they, they'll have reasons to, to keep kicking the can. Unemployment is, is a problem for them. Kashkari said it, um, Jay Powell said it, you know, there, there's some con- conflicting stuff internally in the Fed, but this is the main reason. Like, I just don't, I don't think they'll be able to, to really taper with this as the, 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 um, background. So that's my read on this one. Um, you know, inf- if inflation becomes a real big problem, this thing will spike, but we're seeing signs it's transitory and we'll talk about the next charts. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I guess, uh, you know, if you were to read just the the headlines uh, coming out of the FOMC meeting this week, um, you would say, hey, it, it's looking like uh, tapering is going to be headed, uh, tapering is going to happen later this year. But that's not really what markets are saying. Uh, and I guess your analysis of this uh, index kind of backs that up as well. Um, so yeah, who knows what the market's paying attention to now? It's there's too many levers to pull. You're dealing with policy. You're dealing with the Delta variant. You're dealing with you know Afghanistan. So in China, China is now playing a bigger role in like U.S. monetary policy with them delevering. So who knows what it what's really driving this? The bottom line is I think they need to keep nominal growth rates high. That will have to be incentivized by monetary and fiscal policy and MMT background, and they're going to keep it going indefinitely, in my opinion. Um, you know, transitory inflation. I think we are in secularly inflationary environment. Did we have a high spike in the growth rate of inflation? Yes, and will that come down to higher than two percent? I still think so, but we're going to see a little pullback here because China is a big part of the global economy. Yeah, I think, you know, keeping in mind what the Federal Reserve is, is obviously an important mission right now, the Federal Reserve, which is to protect asset prices. Um, and in this case, that means basically elevating uh, the S&P and equity markets in general. Uh, you know, when I see Delta kind of coming down the pike, I, it's just really hard for me to imagine them tapering in that scenario. And I, I think 
I mean, we were kind of talking before this. It looks like actually you're getting kind of mixed signals from different Fed governors, right? So um, Bullard said something kind of different than how do you pronounce his last name? Kashkar Shahi. Um, it seems like there's kind of dissent. Kashkar, uh, <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Uh, it seems like there's kind of uh, dissent uh, internally there as well. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's just hard to imagine. I think if you look at different stuff, like if you look at the Baltic Dry Index, straight line up, hasn't mm-hmm. pulled back at all. And so, like, there's real inflation in certain pockets, and then there's transitory inflation in others. So, like, lumber is back below where it was before. And so you have those – it depends on what you're looking at, really. Mm-hmm. But I think on the whole, the main policy response is we want nominal GDP growth to keep going no matter what. Yeah. And otherwise, the system kind of unwinds. So because we're just starting to get into um, inflation here, uh, which has been the topic du jour for basically a year. Um, so you also suggest this next, next chart, Tyler, which we're looking at inflation expectations right now from 1995 to present. So uh, tell us what mm-hmm. we're looking at here. So this is just, we, we saw, you know, inflation had a big spike uh, after, after COVID. And now inflation is pulling back. The inflation expectations are pulling back and I think this will be the main reason why the Fed can keep going with, you know, what their policies are on the QE side. Is like, if that really dips below zero, you're heading into a 2008, 2012 type scenario, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, how, how do you taper and tighten if everyone is already kind of like pricing in like deflation in the future? So... I think this is a really prescient one. Yeah, no, I think it's a good one. I think, um, I mean, this narrative has kind of been emerging, but I do think, uh, you know, people are looking at a lot of these uh, price hikes and they're kind of pointing to the rising price of lumber and uh, look at how long it takes to build a house these days and used cars and all of that kind of stuff. And there are different types of inflation, right? There's supply and demand driven inflation. And a lot of the recent price hikes and frankly, a lot of the like news bylines and stuff everyone was focusing on, that was because of uh, temporary uh, supply bottlenecks. So in one very important sense, I do think the Fed was correct, right? About a lot of those signs being transitory. Um, and, and I do think actually Fed, uh, Powell got kind of roasted um, for basically saying, yeah, these prices don't really matter. It's more about the rate of inflation. But he, but he is right about that. It's you know, it's the rate of inflation that you need to watch. But I think um, what you've been saying, and tell me if I'm misinterpreting your thoughts here and what I'm kind of just picking up, listening to a bunch of different people is so there's kind of that temporary supply side inflation, which maybe the Fed was right and it is transitory, but just um, we, we are heading towards an environment that looks much more like secular inflation, which doesn't necessarily have to do with these shortages and temporary supply chain driven issues, but it's just straight up like the amount of M2 and uh, credit creation, money creation that's going on. So, I mean, it is kind of interesting really to see this. Driven by fiscal policy is is the backbone. It's like I think you really need to incentivize nominal growth rates, and fiscal does that. Yeah. And it puts the po- it puts money in the pockets of the middle and lower classes rather than just QE. Doing QE by itself just raises asset prices, creates balance sheet expansion, and that I guess like refinancing mechanism that the 1% gets a benefit from. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's talk about this, the G5 credit impulse. So this is a, um, a chart coming to you from, he, he goes by Macro Alf on Twitter, but his name is uh, Alfonso Picatiello. Um, we're kind of looking at this, uh, this metric that he created, the G5 credit impulse um, and the Russell 2000 year year returns. Um, so Tyler, what are we looking at here? You know, we saw PQE, that's what Mike, Mike Howell called it from cross border capital where, you know, you had fiscal, you had, uh, you had QE from every global bank in overdrive after the pandemic. And that's that giant spike up. Mm -hmm. And now what you're seeing, I think mainly in my opinion is there's something going on in China. I think they're going to control it. Xi's centralizing power. He's basically like annihilated misallocation of capital in large pockets, like hundred billion dollar pockets of, <laughs> of uh, industries, and that has an effect, right? Like they're the fastest growing, you know, most populous country in the world, or one of them. And I think when they, they delever and all that stuff rolls over, 
it, it follows through to the rest of, of the world. So that's kind of what we're looking at here. And I think the fact that China is slowing is really keeping our interest rates in the U.S. lower, like treasury yields. I think it's at the 10 years at, let's see, 1.25. I don't think we're really going anywhere until China really starts kind of heating up their economy again and incentivizing innovation. You know, mm. I'm reading more on the ground stuff in China and, and Xi really wants to take the power of big tech away. He wants an, a more even growth path and less imbalance where you have this like oligarchy of people at the top. He wants to incentivize Chinese middle class growth and innovation. So everyone grows together. It's kind of like an FDR policy um, in the U.S. He's kind of stealing that playbook, I think. Yeah. So when that turns back up. Maybe, you know, it's not going to be like this giant debt bubble in China anymore. It might be more, you know, real growth. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've talked about this before, too, but uh, one kind of overarching framework for looking at the regulatory crackdown that's going on in China is just the importance of control, right, to that regime. And there's kind of the really cyclical way of looking at it. And then there's the more... um, I don't know if you'd call it optimistic, but just another way of looking at it, which is, uh, let's say the the most charitable way you could look at it is you could say uh, China, you know, at its heart is still kind of a centrally planned economy, right? So if you're a central planner in China, you're kind of thinking about, you're not thinking, oh, the free market is going to solve this. You're thinking it's, we need to directly take government action to look out for the best interest of our citizens, right? So uh, that could be something like exactly what you're talking about, basically making sure that uh, purchasing power is increasing for the middle class, uh, all that kind of stuff. I guess the least charitable way you can interpret what's going on is that this is an autocratic regime that just demands control entirely. And one of the vectors that, um, you know, people are using to escape that control is like, tech companies, right? Like more free-flowing capital markets in the form of crypto. Um, and, you know, dictator Xi doesn't like that. So maybe maybe it's somewhere in the middle there. Um, yeah. But I, I agree. I think I think it probably is a, a combo of those things. Um, so I don't know. Part of me is what I find so fascinating in all this is the U.S. credit markets haven't really had a hiccup. Like China Evergrande is getting annihilated. That's a you know three hundred billion dollar plus off balance sheet entity that their bonds are trading at forty cents on the dollar, which is mm. like essentially bankrupt. Right. Yeah. That's one of the lord, largest property developers in the world. And you'd think in a globalized world, it would, follow, it would flow through a little bit to you know, other markets. We're not seeing that just yet. So that's the, you know, if that flips and we start seeing credit contracting here in the U.S., watch out. You know, that's kind of like the Black Swan event that Michael Burry and Palantir kind of like are stacking gold and shorting Kathy Wood. I don't see that happening just yet. No, um, it is funny. There have been a couple of different. Um, so another dot to connect there is Coinbase. Um, so Coinbase, there's some article coming out that they're basically, you know, quote unquote, hoarding cash, right? And they call it they're yeah. preparing for a crypto winter. But it is kind of interesting to see Michael Burry uh, shorting, uh, you know, Kathy Wood's fund and then also Palantir with gold. <laughs> That's I'm yeah. not 100% sure. What to, but yeah, I mean, I guess it just shows you that some people at least are concerned of a big, uh, about a big turn down, right? Or some intense volatility. Yeah. And honestly, like, if Palantir is what it says it is, which like the best data for governments in the world, like mm-hmm. that's a pretty big sign. Um, I agree. But I don't think the gold market really cares. Where, where are we at? Um, in gold. Can't find it. But it didn't really, you know, bounce drastically from there. So, yeah. We'll see. So I wanna I wanna call this this chart has been on our on our uh planning sheet for a little while, but the share of payments processed through Swift. Uh and this is showing twenty seventeen through twenty twenty one. Uh shout out Will Beaumont, our new uh researcher for for pulling this. Um but I think I think why this is interesting to pay attention to it's just a it's just an interesting chart to look at is you're basically looking at um which currencies, uh, like transactions that are denominated and which currencies are going through the SWIFT system. And you can see that um, the big trend here is that 
uh, the share of payments for made in U.S. dollars um, is on the decline. It peaked around 44%. It looks like back in 2019-ish, and it's down to about 38% uh, right now. Uh, and you can see um, uh, payments made in, in Chinese yuan or euros, uh, those are both on the rise. Um, I mean, it's, it's just it's just an interesting thing to look at. Um, and one thing that Brent Johnson has been saying that's really just got me thinking a lot, like you and I, Tyler, I feel like when we talk about the US dollar uh, being the reserve currency, we kind of almost approach it from a holistic angle. Like, is this really good for the US, uh, US citizens, the economy as a whole? You know, Brent's point is that there's a different set of incentives, right, for people in power. So for the folks that are actually in charge of making these decisions, that political tool of being the issuer of the reserve currency is actually quite, um, that's more important some, for some people than just like the economic benefit of the US or like a more holistic approach to, you know, what's in the strategic best interest of the US. Um, but, it, but it's kind of interesting to watch. Uh, I mean, what this chart indicates to me is that that, you know, very strict control is actually slipping a little bit and other currencies are kind of challenging the US dollar outside of crypto and everything else. Um, I don't know. What's your read when you look at this? Yeah, I think this is like, you know, global capital flow supply chains, if you'd call it, are kind of changing a little bit. I think mm -hmm. China is centralizing. They want to roll out the, the digital yuan. And obviously, after this last hiccup and in, in delevering by Xi, you know, Yuan payments and SWIFT kind of took a dip, but Euro payments are rising, right? That's, a, that's an interesting sign. Mm. It's like if, if China is re, you know, I guess choosing different trade partners and, and kind of getting away from the U S dollar, you know, hegemony, I, you know, this will be interesting to watch over the next couple of years for sure, because Europe is this weird conglomeration of a bunch of countries with all wacky incentives that you you think it shouldn't work like it should have broken apart especially in like 2012 and 2013 but like in some ways because of that like cluster of of weird botched incentives mm -hmm. it almost creates like a, a, a kind of harbor for for china to use as like i guess payments if that makes sense it, like they they are they'd rather align themselves with Europe because they're so much bigger and they can take advantage of that rather mm -hmm. than the U.S. payment system. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll keep watching this one. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then this last uh, chart I threw on here was just pretty interesting. This got shared in the Economist. Um, you know, I, I'm not actually sure what the data is uh, to support this, but basically what we're looking at here is just. Um, working age population demographics, and we could go all the way back to 1950. Um, so we're looking at uh, China, Japan, uh, the United States, and the EU. Uh, this chart paints a pretty uh, dour uh, picture for basically everyone outside of the US. Uh, so you'll see like China, European Union, Japan, um, that working age population is actually increasing, increasing, increasing from about 1950 to 2000. Uh, and then it's projected to just continue to take a big dip. Uh, and that applies for every country except for the US. So, you know, I guess just looking at this graph on, on its face, this actually paints a, a pretty bullish picture for the US just based on from a demographics perspective. Um, I don't know, do you have any yeah. special thoughts or take on this? Yeah, you know, what's funny is, I think like two or three weeks ago, Xi basically took out you know, the, you can have more kids now in China, and also is starting to actually give subsidies to Chinese families for childcare. Mm. And I think he knows that this is an issue, especially with a highly indebted economy. You need population growth to sustain those interest rate payments, right? And so you're going to see more of this from governments. Like it's the, the Biden family plan. I get paid $333 a month for my two kids. It just ends up in my checking account now in the U.S. <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. believe it or not, I bet you didn't even know that. I and, did not. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Right. And that's, and that's part of the, the fiscal stuff. And I think that's half of it too. I think it's 600 with two kids under, under three. So my point being is like all these policies are, are highly stimulative for family creation, um, because the, the debt rates are incredible. 
right? Like mm -hmm. you need nominal growth. So we're going to throw all sorts of fiscal at it. You're probably going to see that from the European Union, China, and Japan. I'm surprised Japan's not doing more because they're really bearing the brunt of it. Yeah. It looked, I mean, it looks like Japan um, kind of peaked even earlier back in, it looks like really late 90s or early 2000s um, based on this chart. Yeah. So, yeah, it's tough. I mean, uh, different people have different um, perspectives on what goes into structural growth. Uh, I mean, it seems like a lot of people, at least in, in crypto, tend to ascribe a lot of um, impact to technology um, and technology gains and kind of the impact that that has on jobs and wages, et cetera. But I mean, it really, the more I kind of look into it, it just more looks like, you know, demographics is such an important um, component. So yeah, I think this is definitely something to watch for sure. Howdy guys. Excited to talk to you a little bit about this week's sponsor, Matrix Support. If you're like me, you're trying to figure out how can I make my crypto go as far as it possibly can. Well, Matrix Support makes it really easy to do the simple stuff like just buying and trading and you're holding your crypto on a secure platform that you don't have to worry about. But they also help you take that next step to doing things like getting loans against your crypto or earning yield on it. Let's talk about the yield part because for me, that earn feature is the most interesting thing that they do. Number one, first step, you can start earning up to 30% APY on your USDC deposits. That's about 29.99% more than if you just kept those funds in a bank account. Talk about a no-brainer. Number two, their team walked me through this. They have made accessing DeFi easy. And guys, I am telling you, I am the biggest Luddite on the face of the earth. If I can understand this stuff, then I promise, so can you. So don't wait. At least go check them out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. All right. Uh, let's get into stories of the week here. So uh, kind of kick it off with Binance. Um, so Binance, this is actually really big really big news um, because especially back in, you know, right now there's a lot of attention being paid to SBF and uh, FTX and everything, but the original executor, like just nonstop executing machine that could not be stopped was CZ back in uh, 2017. And they just like ate the competition. Uh, you know, they were just this unstoppable wrecking ball. Everything they did hit perfect execution, unstoppable. Um, so today uh, Binance uh, announced that they're implementing mandatory KYC requirements um, so basically all users, uh, they need to complete, uh, intermediate verification of mounting compliance pressure from worldwide regulators. Um, Binance has said that the move comes as it reviews, as it reviews its products and services on an ongoing basis to quote, determine changes and improvements in light of evolving global compliance standards. Um, another important thing to point out is that, uh, they Binance further reduced the daily withdrawal limit for non-verified users. So the maximum that you used to be able to withdraw was two Bitcoin. Now it is 0 0.06 Bitcoin. It's a pretty large, uh, pretty large um, uh, delta there. Uh, and then I, I actually want to just reference this tweet from Jake Trevinsky because I totally agree with it. So he retweeted uh, CZ saying that mandatory uh, KYC is coming for all Binance services. Jake Dravinsky tweets, context, BitMEX announced mandatory KYC in August 2020. Two months later, criminal charges were filed. So I'm not going to say he's making a prediction, but that definitely is uh, some super important context. Um, I don't know, I Tyler, what think do you think? That, I, I kind of think CZ already knows about BitMEX and what happened there. Like you'd mm -hmm. think a guy that smart would be like, okay, here's the liability part and here's what could happen. But how else do you, you have to tear off the bandaid at some point and, and go legit, I guess, when regulation is coming. Like no matter what you think, and like I know the free market libertarians are like, you know, we don't need the government, et cetera, but like it's it's in the interest of the US to, to kind of put it alongside the US dollar at this point. And you're better off with that than having, you know, 100 different countries regulating it. You know, you can just use the U.S. as the, the backbone. Um, anyway, I think it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. Will there be fallout? Probably some. I think he, he's pretty much been an open book since he's like, help me, help me get this regulated, right? Like he's said that for a couple months now. Mm-hmm. Like, how can I be more transparent? And, and I think that's the right move, even if it's two steps back, you know, three steps forward. 
What about you? Um, yeah, I guess I kind of... So I guess the analogy that I use in my head is uh, back in 2017 when there were all those ICOs that were happening, all the lawyers, it was very popular for lawyers in the space at that time to say, hey guys, this is not going to stand. The SEC is going to crack down. They're going to put a stop to this entire party, uh, yada, yada. People are going to go to jail, etc. cetera. Um, and they were kind of right and kind of wrong about that because there have been a lot of enforcement actions. People have needed to pay fines. There have been a couple uh, criminal uh, complaints, uh, so against XRP or, or Ripple. But honestly, it doesn't look like those guys are going to go to jail because of it. And at the end of the day, ICOs were kind of the precursor to these token launches that are going on in DeFi right now that are very successful and people are finding out a way to do it in a compliant way. So yeah. in one like really important sense, those lawyers were right. But in another, probably more important sense, they were wrong. So people have been talking about regulatory crackdown on Binance and other exchanges like this for a long period of time. I think if you had a pragmatic approach to the space and just how regulators work in general, this shouldn't come as a massive surprise. And frankly, like, look, if, if retail users can't get 100x leverage on these exchanges, it's just like not that great of a loss, is it? <laughs> like, um, <laughs> I, I think the more interesting question to ask actually is how this will, what will the impact of this be on decentralized exchanges? in general, um, and these kind of back-end uh, just open-source software is like Uniswap and SushiSwap. I think yeah. what, like, if we start to see volumes pour out of these centralized entities and into decentralized ones, like signpost right there, as Luke yeah. Roman likes to say, signpost. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think that'll but be really... Like, I, what about the DeFi? They made a comment on DeFi like yesterday, the SEC, on how... You know, money, if, if money's going through there, he, he related to like Lending Club and these, these you know, pass-through entities that inevitably got regulated too. I, you know, I, I, gotta, I gotta think that's coming, even though, like, how can you regulate it? Like, I don't know, but we'll see, we'll see. Yeah. I, I gotta think it's, something's gonna happen there. I have not no that idea. I want it to. No, 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 me either. No, me either. I, I don't really know. Um, on the one hand, Gary Gensler strikes me as a guy who, I mean, he understands this space. In fact, if you, mm. that could actually be more damaging is to have someone that actually understands uh, what's going on in, in that regulatory seat. But, um, yeah. you know, I don't really know how to interpret this whole, like, there's going to be a tough cop on the beat type thing. Because maybe, the mo again, the most charitable way of interpreting that is like, that was always going to happen. The space was always going to get regulated. And by having someone who is favorable to the space, but it's like, guys, we got to find a way to start integrating this. Maybe that's positive. Um, I think there's a, we're heading towards an inflection point. Basically the U S in my opinion, our business model, if you could ascribe a business model to a country is we encourage innovation and then we make sure that we get our slice of it. Right. That's like what we do. So I think you just need to be super, super careful about regulating this stuff away. Um, Ultimately, I think the U.S. could do that if they just had draconian regulations that came down on DeFi and stablecoins and that kind of stuff. I think they could probably put like a 10-year delay in all of this stuff. And maybe that's how politicians think. I don't know. But I don't think you I don't can think stamp it out will. entirely. I don't think we will yeah. either. I don't think we will either. I, but um, you got guys like Mark Andreessen who literally built the 21st century economy. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's front-facing, raised the $2 billion fund, you know he's calling all the legislators personally and basically saying, listen, do you guys want negative nominal GDP rates? Okay, then regulate it. But like, you know, <laughs> cannabis is going to be legal. Crypto is mostly going to be legal. Like, let's, they're, the Demo baby boomers saturated this thing in such debt, you need nominal growth to go. And like, to be draconian on a transcendental technology is just dumb like I, and i even if they do it there'll be so much pushback and lord you know the new our generation of politicians that are about to sit in those seats they're just going to change it eventually anyway so yeah that's that's my read on it is yeah that's my not enough growth that. in the world and we're going to be the the bastion of innovation yeah Totally agree. And by the way, I think that's the right way to frame it. Um, it this is a growth story, not a... Uh, 
that's why with this next story, I want to just talk about like narratives and framing in general, um, getting into your favorite company, OnlyFans. Uh, I really think, uh, I would, <laughs> I would continue, Big OnlyFans Big OnlyFans. <laughs> uh, you know, single-handedly keeping that company in business. Um, yeah, but I, but I think the, the framework or the narrative to look at here is actually a growth story and not a, Hey, let me hodl this and like watch the world burn. And like, I'm safe on my little raft. I really think that, um, we live in a society and like, you know, ultimately a lot of the problems that we're seeing right now are growth related, um, because that's why central mm -hmm. banks are doing what they're doing. But, um, with that, I want to transition into this next story here. So OnlyFans is going to start barring sexually explicit content starting in October. Um, so starting in October, the company will prohibit, prohibit creators from posting material with sexually explicit content on its website, which many sex workers use to sell fans explicit content. They'll still be allowed to put up nude photos and videos, um, assuming that they're consistent with OnlyFans policy. Um, so I guess that just means like straight up porn is not allowed, but there still will be nude photos and stuff like that. Um, okay. You know, what's actually the most mind-blowing thing about this? I was like digging around uh, to try to get like numbers on how big they are and, and stuff like that. Uh, so OnlyFans has 130 million um, customers worldwide. <laughs> Which is just... Um, that is... I mean, that, those numbers are so disappointing for humanity. I mean, Dude. I'm not... <laughs> like, are people I mean, going to procreate? <laughs> like, I mean, I mean like, wait, just, just look at these numbers. Though. So it's 130 million uh, accounts yeah. worldwide. To give people some context for that, that's only 70 million less than Netflix. And it's growing way faster than Netflix. So here are just some stats. So gross merchandise value in 2020 was 2.2 billion. In 2021, it's 5.9 billion. 2022 is projected 12.5 billion. Net revenue during that same period of time, 375 million in 2020. 2021 is 1.2 billion. 2022 is 2.5 billion. And yeah. here's the kicker. Free cash flow in 2020, 150 million. 2021, 620 million. 2022, $1.2 billion. What I mean, valuation, Tyler, Tyler, just what valuation yeah. would you ascribe to a tech? Like, if this wasn't OnlyFans, you have a company that's growing revenue that's in the billions at like 4x, it's, it's cash flow positive. What would you ascribe that, that multiple? Like, how, how would you value that company? Who knows? I mean, it's just enormous. And it's, it, what's crazy to me is like, they're doing this for access to the banking system. So it's a platform company that wants access to the centralized ecosystem. And I think you brought up Edward Snowden, his tweet on this, which said something along the lines of Bitcoin fixes this, right? So the reason that we're, the reason that we're talking about this, the reason why I feel like this is actually relevant um, for our industry is because, yeah, Edward Snowden basically retweeted uh, this announcement on Twitter said Bitcoin fixes this. And it's been kind of all over Twitter, people saying, when are we going to build the decentralized part of this? Um, mm. And the, the, the thing that we didn't talk about yet is the reason why OnlyFans is shifting away from this like uh, kind of pornography type content is because of uh, pressure from their banking and payments partners. So, I mean, I don't know how many folks like Nick Carter talks a lot about Operation Choke Point. Um, I feel like folks should get educated about that. It's really interesting. It was basically an operation that was encouraged by the U.S. government where they they basically kind of forced the banking system and this consortium of banks to not provide financial services, basic banking services, like literally checking account type things, uh, to this whole wide range of industries. And uh, they were, you know, unsavory industries, right? It would be like payday lending, you know, guns and you know, firearms, stuff like that. Um, but it's kind of a slippery slope, isn't it? And... It is funny, like OnlyFans is kind of a on-trend uh, company. It's like sexual empowerment, all that kind of stuff. So to me, this is an example of this is just a, it's a killer startup that you can make a lot of positive arguments for that's just getting uh, shunted by the banking system. So within the larger framework of like, why are we talking about this show? A lot of uh, on the show, generally when people c connect Bitcoin and crypto and macro, they talk about Bitcoin. And there's that story that everyone's really familiar with at this point. It's a hedge against financial oppression, inflation, central bank profligacy, whatever it is. So basically people look at like interest rates and what Bitcoin is doing and say, this is the macro connection. But I think there are some other important signposts, right? If you and I are saying growth is at the, the center of what we're doing here, a lot of what's going on in DeFi is going to be highly influential, then I think people should look at where big centralized players are essentially abusing their power 
as macro indicators of growth in this space, mm-hmm. right? So what are examples of that? Uh, I think what happened with GameStop uh, and stopping trading, right? Because of like central clearing considerations, that was a big macro indicator. And by the way, banks now, banks and brokers shifting to T plus one uh, as of this week, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So that's a big signpost. This is going to go down as a big signpost. You're essentially deplatforming a super, super successful unicorn uh, startup, right? Because, you know, someone someone didn't like the industry that they're operating in. Um, shoot, I had another big one and I just forgot it. But, oh, I think Facebook. I think I think Facebook and all this stuff that they're getting about free speech, et cetera, there's no winning for them. They already know that. There's literally no winning. They're, they're yeah. so screwed. This is a huge signpost for decentralized social media. So, like... I just want to start, you know, at least on this show, like framing the narrative that when you think about macro bullish indicators for this space, it doesn't have to always do with monetary policy, interest rates, et cetera. Yeah. There are these other really important signposts that everyone should be paying attention to. Yeah. Pomp brought up in his newsletter today was like the Western Union stuff in Afghanistan too, as being huge for strike. Like these are macro stuff that, you know, Western Union shut down all West um, access for Afghanis in, in the country. Strike mm-hmm. can basically take this, the place of that and do it for free, essentially. And uh, that's those are the types of things, these big platform companies like Western Union, platform companies like Facebook, OnlyFans, they don't necessarily, in two or three years, they're not necessarily going to have the control. They, don't, they have the pricing power now. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of like ambivalent on the whole porn industry. I think it's sad that 100 million people pay for porn. It's like, what, what the hell? <laughs> but, a lot of it's not actually porn, though. I will say, like, the biggest creators, I forget, it's like, uh, I think all, all the largest creators on that site are not in any, like, not even sharing nudes or anything like that. It's like okay. Cardi well, B and actually... Trey Songs. I don't, I mean, I was just, you know, Googling it, but uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, But, uh, yeah, so they have a large non-nudity porn business too, but gotcha. Okay, still, it's just crazy to me that like you know, in in this day and age, you can't see all that stuff coming in their competitors. Maybe it's just because they're trying to what um, the legacy players like Facebook. They're just trying to like elbow competition out of the way as long as they can, even though like there are technologies that are literally disrupting this before our very eyes, and it's just a matter of time. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. So I don't know. I mean, I kind of look at the stories. I agree. I I think that's kind of the point though, is that when you look at abuses like this, it's not going to happen to popular industries that everyone likes. Right. I mean, it it actually, if you look at the original industries that were targeted by um, project choke point, it was like really insalubrious type industries. Like no one would put their hand up and say, no, I really think that, you know, these industries should be protected. I think it's interesting to watch, only fans, because again, porn, it's like right on the line. They're not totally, it's not really fair to classify them entirely as a porn business. Um, you know, it, there is something about like empowerment here, uh, but it's like one shade lighter, so to speak. And then, you know, it's just, it's just centralized, uh, you know, entities abusing control. I think that's why it's an important, important signpost yeah. to watch. So, um, sure. and then, uh, so our last story here, uh, you know, we talked about this well, at the before open. We go- before yep. we go to the last story, what's really interesting now is that in 2017, we knew all the narratives like this behind the scenes, but now they're real companies that are built right. that are in competition with these platform companies. And it's just as a signpost to know that, how many times can we say signpost in this? I don't know. <laughs> but, but to know that at least like, at least five or ten more, I think there's actually like that arb exists. Like Western Union and Strike now are like real players against each other, which will create like arbitrages for for hedge funds to short Western Union and go long Strike. Like that will make the evolution and efficiency of of DeFi and de- decentralized stuff a lot faster. Right, like Agreed. you could see Western Union die in three years. Like, there's there's a chance, you know. There, in th- all those those narratives that were there in 2017, people kind of forgot about now. And so I wanted to highlight that. That's no, a really good point. Speaking of narratives, were you at all surprised to see the meme treatment that the Taliban got 
when they took over Afghanistan. Like, I don't know if you, I don't know how many like memes you saw about this, but a couple, yeah, like man, I, them in the weight room and stuff. Like they treat them as if it's not like you know. <laughs> it was like there was one from like Borat, you know, like when Borat when he's getting into the hotel and he's like, "Oh boy, you know, look at this!" Like, and it's like the Taliban when they finally, and like the, it was. I mean, the tone of the memes were not like, "Hey, this is some tragedy, human rights thing. These are terrorists." Yeah, it was like, "Hey, this is kind of funny." Uh, like, I don't know. I mean, I was really surprised to watch uh, how this transition happened online, I will say. Um, I, I don't really know what to make of it. Millennials and Gen Zers is because throughout the past 30 years, they really haven't had like the experiences of the boomers where the boomers went to Vietnam. Like they they get war, right? They get that stuff. And we haven't had to deal with any of it. So they yeah. actually have like half they joke around like it's like you know there's guys literally with their like head hands against the wall with guns pointed at them and like it's almost a desensitization because of the internet for our generation which is really screwed up honestly and i think it's because we haven't really dealt with anything i think you're seeing high level like narratives collide right now and produce things that don't make a lot of sense so my read on this i could be totally wrong all right i'll just say that but my read on why younger millennials and Gen Z kind of think this is funny is it's like, oh, hey, there's this, you know, small country, underdog country, marginalized group of people, and they just kind of like took back over the the country. And it's, I can see why that plays to a younger generation, but it's like, dude, you got to remember what what this organization is and has done. They literally, they sheltered Al-Qaeda and uh, they were in a huge part responsible for the 9-11 attacks and they like do public executions and like, this is not some funny thing. I, I, I've been pretty, yeah, I, it is a generational thing. You know, I was talking about this with my parents and uh, I was like, yeah, I've been kind of interested to look at like the meme treatment that they're getting. And my parents just think it's disgusting. And it's terrible. Um, I kind of agree. I think this goes into the bucket of like nihilism where in part of, and this is to defend the millennials and Gen Zers is that most of the people in power, if you look at all the, the things that they've been told have been full of shit, really. It's like, whether it's Trump or Obama or, or Biden, like nothing or, or anybody at like a high, big institution. Personally, right. one of my notes this week is like, it's about centralization rather mm -hmm. than anything else. It's like, when you feel disenfranchised as a generation, you're like, what, who cares? Because like, mm -hmm. if, if you're in power and you're in leadership and you feel like your decisions matter, that's really when you care about stuff a little bit more. And there hasn't been that passing of the torch just yet. I think that's really the backbone of all this stuff. Yeah, I've, I think that's fair to do it. I am. Um... Dimitri Kofinas actually corrected me the other day talking about going long volatility. He was like, you're actually looking at people going long convexity, like high payouts um, and, and be willing to go off. I think it's just like, dude, a lot of people in our generation, it's, it's hard to put into words. But yeah, there's just um, kind of a sense of, yeah, I think maybe disenchantment, uh, disillusionment, not sure what the path is. And when you have a whole generation of people who feel like that, yeah, you get some wacky outcomes uh, for sure. Um, yeah. But I do want to move, move well, on to this next. Dude, get this. Yeah. I'm 37, right? And not to sidetrack us, but like when Joe Biden was a politician, he was like leading, you know, he was a senator at what, 33, I think. Mm -hmm. How many peers do I know that are in like leadership positions? Like not many. Like mm -hmm. coming from, you'd think like the the ones that I know are are started their own companies, they're entrepreneurs, and they're not heads of big organizations. All these people that are still in power have been in power for like 30 years. When you think about it like that. The well, average age at... of the CEO keeps rising. It's like 60-some. I know. Some, you know? I, know. Like... I know. They're not abdicating. Uh, and you can see where wealth is concentrated, too. It's like all in that boomer generation. Um, yeah, so I think that tells honestly, a lot about the memes. To, to also continue on this, this track of yours here, the one hot take that's been getting passed around that I totally agree with. I saw Novogratz tweet this like two years ago. Uh, I don't know if it was him who first started doing it, but it was like, I mean, I know the average 
age of a CEO is increasing, but still no one really gets to elected to be CEO of a Fortune 500 company after the age of like 60, 65, right? That's a right about where it kind of tops out. These politicians that are running the country are 80 years old. I mean, <laughs> I mean, come on, man. I actually really do agree with that tweet. Like, I'm sorry. It's not your world anymore. It's not you. Wow. If you... If you're too old to know what Facebook is or understand their business model, you should not be in a yeah. leadership position. I'm sorry. I'm right. sorry. You're because mi- you're missing a huge portion of what's going on. Like, yeah. and like, there's probably some sharp eighty year olds out there. I'm not knocking you, but like, on mass, come on. Like, it's kind of crazy. And Novogratz, I got a lot. I love the fact that he is actually talking about that. You know, me too. It's it's important. It's really yeah. important. I agree. Um, yeah, I'm not knocking, I'm not, I'm not trying to knock either. I'm just saying like, you know, you, no one would be making the argument that, um, you know, you should be able to elect an 18 year old or a 20 year old, you know, to a Senator's position either. It makes sense, right? Like it takes a little while for you to biologically build up like your risk, uh, management capabilities, like your, your brain and internal infrastructure to mature at a certain point in people's ages, like that stuff deteriorates. And I'm not saying there aren't smart 80 year olds, but I'm also saying, you know, if you ask the average grand person, you know, their, their thoughts on a lot. I'm thinking about my own grandparents. Love you guys. But, you know, I, I wouldn't want them uh, making decisions uh, for the country. Ted, Ted Cruz, like whatever you think about him, he, he's the what he said in front of Congress is like four people here understand cryptocurrency. Like, why are we regulating this? And like, how do you disagree with that? It's it's whether or not you like his politics, it's. What he said right there is the epitome of what's going on in Congress because of the age gap. It's like everyone in our generation would be like, yeah, let's do some work on this before. But like there, it's just like, let's shove the pork. Just shove it in there. You know? Just how it's been done. Oh, my and God. Maybe it'll still happen like that later, but I don't know. Okay. That was some real cognitive dissonance there. Um, yeah, finding myself agreeing with Ted Cruz. That was, um, that was an interesting experience for me. Um, all right, uh, last story here. Let's just touch on it briefly. But Jay Clayton moving on to the advisory board of Fireblocks. Honestly, big congrats uh, to Fireblocks. That's a that's a really big deal. Um, one of our reporters, Jackie Melanek, actually got an interview uh, with Jay Clayton. Very proud slash somewhat jealous of her. I've been trying to do that for basically three years. So uh, props to you, Jay Jackie. Melly. Yeah. Uh, Jay Melly. Um, good good job. Uh, you guys should all go check it out on the Blockwork site. But I mean, overall, I just think. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a great win for Fireblocks. I think it's a great win for the industry in general to get people like Jay Clayton kind of on board um, in some important sense. And I also do think it's indicative of uh, a lot of smart companies basically bracing for, yeah, call it whatever you want, regulatory impact. So I think it's an important thing to just pay attention to. Definitely. And yeah, yeah that, that's, a, that's a huge one, no matter how you cut it. I really want to know how much these guys get paid. Me too. Like, how much, how, much would you, how, how much do you think? <laughs> How much do you think they give it? All right, let's throw it out there. Everyone, everyone All asks. Right. Yeah, All right, everyone just, everyone just take five seconds, ten seconds, think about what you think the number is. If I was Jake Clayton, what would I demand? Okay, so Jay, yeah, if you want to, you want to do it in terms of like equity and and uh, dollars. I, I'm gonna, I'll throw a guess out. I'm gonna give you a dollar amount for one year equity and salary. Okay, Should let me think about three, that two, then. Three, two, one. Okay. Yeah. Three, two, one, eight and a half million. 2.5 million. <laughs> oh, big Delta. Big Delta. Big Delta. Yeah. Look, man, here, here's me. Here's, this is why I think that because if I'm Fireblocks, um, two, whatever, whatever the recent, I can't even keep up. They get revalued like every six months or over $2 billion, right? Unicorn last time I saw. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, $10 million is like, point five percent of that enterprise value how much yeah. how much of an impact do you think having jay clayton on that advisory board is for me if i was making allocation decisions there it's like the biggest no-brainer in the world but the reason i said equity versus i mean i bet yeah. that's like all equity right that that's how you have to yeah. pay that in order for to align the incentives like he's probably only getting paid exactly i mean i'm totally making this up but i i would i would do like some small retainer Maybe like really low six figures, like hundred k a year, yeah. something like that, and then the rest is it's all in equity. Um, the equity kicker, 
Yeah. I'm just judging. I was trying to go off Janet Yellen's speaking fees from Citadel and, uh, you know, who else? Goldman Sachs. But she made mm-hmm. $7 million last year. Yeah. It's like, yeah. So I was like, okay, feel like, you know, he's probably not really, like, whoring himself out as much as Janet Yellen. <laughs> Maybe 8.5 is high, <laughs> but, but like, I don't know, dude. I'm just like, I mean... I'm totally speculating here. I've, I've, I have no inside information at all. Uh, yeah. But like, I'm <laughs> we'll Michael. Never find and, out, but it's great. No, never find out. But if I'm Michael and Co. over there, like, I know that that seems crazy expensive, but man, it would kind of be mm-hmm. money well spent. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Because <laughs> like, because like, what are the odds, right? Like, they're going to be competing against other platforms, right? They're doing extremely well, from what I understand. But yeah. maybe. Maybe having Jay Clayton on your board leads to like, you know, an extra 15% chance that you don't get, you know, regulated into oblivion, basically, or you have some or sort of advantage. Yeah. Right. So like, what's, you know, 10 or 15% of $2 billion? I don't know. You know, I, it's like, I'm, yeah. this is the way I'd be thinking about it if I was making this decision. Um, I like it. I like yeah. it. Um, <laughs> Everyone's uh, thinking about it, too. I know. Well, now you're all thinking about it. Yeah. So public post your guesses. If every guys public employee thinks about this their entire career, right? So it's got <laughs> to be. It's got to be nice. I know. Yeah. Um, all right. We what last? I mean, I don't really want to read this whole thing. I was good, but uh, Chris Dixon. Uh, so tweet of the week here. He had this really great threads on how blockchains are the new app stores. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing out to you guys because it's like 30 tweets. It's really good. You should all go read it. But it's basically the idea that, you know, in between 2009 and 2015 or something like that, if you were a young, hungry entrepreneur, you would go build an app. You know, like that's how you got these like, unicorns around that period of time, like the Ubers, et cetera. Now the young, hungry entrepreneurs are building blockchains, which are essentially software computer networks on top of hardware computer networks. And all this innovation is happening at the fringes. And honestly, if you look at guys like Rob Leshner or, or Kane or, or Rune or any of these like successful DeFi entrepreneurs. These are pretty fringe things. And these guys have made really significant uh, amounts of money. So, I mean, I I thought it was a great thread. Um, Yeah, you should just go read it. It's a good one. So. Nice. All right, my man. That that about wraps it up for the week. Um, What are you up to this weekend? Um, Not much. I have to go get the car fixed. So, interesting tidbit about I have a, at least a Ford uh, Explorer for in 2020. And they are calling me nonstop, sending me nonstop emails. Hey, we want to buy the car back because it's leased and they can resell it at like a 50% premium from what, you know, it's blue book value is probably. So I'm going to negotiate and haggle with the dealership about what they're going to offer me if I exchange this thing for something else. So that's, that's what I'm doing this weekend. Good deal, man. <laughs> I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I wonder if anyone even cares what either of us do over the weekends, but I'm going to stop because like never once have we been doing something that cool over these weekends. It's like, I'm going to yeah. go uh, try to, yeah. I'm going to Vegas. Yeah. I, this is a wake up call for the two of us. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm in big sky right now, so I'll probably go on a hike or something, play some golf. Yeah. But that's yeah, pretty it's not cool. Like a I was going to say, pretty, you get to say I'm in Yeah. That's awesome. Well, all right, buddy. Good roundup. See you. See you next week.